Hello, hello. Welcome to Ask Alika. I hope you're having a wonderful Tuesday morning. We've been sponsoring Start the Startup West podcast for some time now. Startup West is a podcast that interviews successful WA entrepreneurs. It's co-hosted by our very own Beth and Charlie Gunningham. They recently interviewed Dr. Gemma Green from PowerLedger. Now, Dr. Gemma Green, she's the co-founder and chairman of PowerLedger. PowerLedger is a technology company that is revolutionizing the way electricity is consumed. They use blockchain and AI technology to do that. Dr. Gemma Green, she's a massive overachiever, but also a super nice person to boot. That's a rare combination in people. I'm going to share this podcast with you today from Startup West. And, you know, Dr. Gemma Green talks about everything from, you know, her childhood, her schooling, all the way through to how Power Ledger was formed and what they're doing now. So, without further ado, I'm going to share this podcast with you and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, so for those listeners who maybe aren't from Perth or who haven't met you before, Gemma, can you give us a little bit of, uh, of background, the, uh, the Cliff Notes version of uh, your life story to date, just starting from, yeah, how you, how you came to be here and, and yeah, go, go ahead. Certainly. So, I, I'm a proud Sangroba, West Australian. Beautiful. I was born and raised in the Perth Hills and... Um, uh, my parents are both foreigners. My mum's Italian and my dad's Irish. Wow. Uh, so I'm a first-generation Australian. Big family, lots of brothers and sisters. Uh, my dad's one of 12. Wow. And, uh, yeah, he, yeah. Oh, that's the Irish <laughs> that's side. The Irish yes, side. that's the, um, well, yeah, so fiery and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my dad, uh, he trained and bred thoroughbred racehorses and also yeah. was a used car salesman and a bookmaker. And so had a bit of, I think. Bit of an entrepreneur yeah, genes, himself. Uh, Hence up in the hills with the horses. Yes, yes, exactly. And did you have lots of brothers and sisters and still do? Uh, actually, yes. Um, I, I've got uh, five brothers and sisters. Wow. wow. Yes. Okay. Big family. Yeah. Uh, my dad was married before he right. married mm-hmm. my mum. Mm-hmm. And then I've got uh, one uh, younger sister, Amy, and she's a couple of years younger than I am. And at school, did you have leadership positions? Did you end up being coach of this, captain of that, debating team, that sort of stuff? Uh Actually, no, I, I, right. I didn't. I was very interested in debating, but uh, I went I went to Eastern Hills Senior High School up in the hills and I, I did a public speaking course, uh, no, a competition, and I remember actually when I was about 12 years old coming down to Perth and delivering my talk about Henry Lawson and there were all these kids from all these um, private schools and right. doing their talks and they got up very confidently without yeah. any notes and I remember feeling like the 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 kind of clueless, ill-prepared one. Right. Uh, and you smashed it. No. Well, no, I, I got up with my piece of paper and read my, read oh, my talk. Oh, good for you. I, didn't know, I, I remember going, oh, these kids have a different like type of education to the one right. that I had. And it was actually quite a defining moment because I realised how important it was getting a good education. Right. right. And the so, access they had was different. Yeah. So I think that's partly the reason why I've – pretty much been studying um, my entire, you know, adult mm-hmm. life whilst working full-time. Right. So, uh, you know, I did my undergraduate degree yep. and then I moved pretty much immediately to the UK. Mm-hmm. My undergrad degree is in finance and I worked as an investment banker there for 11 years. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. So you done a commerce degree and then mm-hmm. in 2001 you went yes. to London for three years. How did that come up? 11? Yes. Okay, mm. got that wrong. Um, <laughs> oh, three years later, that's right, three years later after mm-hmm. your degree you went to London. Um, how did that come about? 
it's fairly typical for, you know, Aussies to do a stint yeah. abroad. And because my dad's Irish, I have an Irish EU passport. Oh, easier for you to get there. Yeah, and it meant I could stay for mm. as long as I liked. And, um, you know, my my degree in commerce, majoring in finance, meant it was quite easy to get a job in the banking sector. So I yeah. kind of fell into it. Um, the first half of my time there was in mainstream finance. And then about halfway through, uh, I was working at JP Morgan at the time uh, in exotic and hybrid equity derivative risks. Oh, wow. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Quite a mouthful. Yeah, it was. uh, uh, that was kind of around 2004 Mm -hmm. and the bank was making a lot of money from all these financial products and I was kind of scratching my head a bit going, how is this all possible? And, and in fact, in the three years I was on this desk, they made so the amount of money that they made, I think it was about $2 billion and in 2007, pretty much 10 years ago, like this week because of the um, mm. Lehman Brothers collapse mm. anniversary, um, they lost like $1.1 billion. So they lost the entirety of the previous year, uh, three years' earnings and profits. And all the people that had made these supersized bonuses at the time kind of walked away, you know, unscathed. Except the investors were the ones that – and it did actually spark my thinking around, you know, how sustainable is this? So you lived through the GFC there in London. Yeah. Wow. And stayed for a few more years before you came back to Perth. Yeah, I returned to Australia in 2012. um, Mm. uh, And in between I I did quite a bit of travelling. But, yeah, while I was in London I sort of flipped into environmental and social risk management after doing a training course, I introduced recycling facilities to the bank's London offices, which was about 9,000 people. Mm -hmm. And uh, in doing this recycling project, I thought this is more interesting than my day job and I want to work in the field of sustainability. And so I enrolled to do a postgraduate diploma in sustainable business at Cambridge University and then went on to do another postgrad uh, in cross-sector partnership and then a master's by research. Uh, And uh, I realised, and then I've since come back and done this PhD because I'm yeah. a bit of a sucker for punishment. Right? Correct. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I think that, that that moment back, you know, when I was a child, I really realised how important it was. And, yeah. and, I, and those decisions that I made around study have been really important in terms of the trajectory that my career has taken mm-hmm. and that I've been able to really find an outlet to express my passions as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So in early 2016, you founded PowerLedger or co-founded PowerLedger. Yes. So what were the reasons behind this? Obviously, you just mentioned that you, the PhD you did uh, influenced that in some way. And can you kind of talk us through what that process was like? Yeah. So when I returned to Australia, originally I was going to move back to Sydney or Melbourne where all the banks are and get a job in banking. Mm-hmm. But I just felt compelled to come home. And it was with excitement because I knew I'd be close to my family. But In another sense, it was with a sense of trepidation because I thought I was moving to the career backwaters. Right. (laughs) Poor old Perth. Doesn't have a good rep, does it? I know, but I'm I'm converted. Oh, Um, yeah. I just like to say, no, I I think Perth has so much to offer from a career perspective now and you're not able to know it except perhaps experientially and I hope to change that from... You know, I think your story is a good example of that for one. But Yeah, um, well, I hope my daughter doesn't have to kind of trot mm-hmm. off for, you know, a decade or more to find exciting opportunities. But mm-hmm. anyway, I came home not really knowing what to do, but in between leaving London and coming back home, I took nine months sabbatical and I hiked a lot. I did the Camino de Santiago, this walk hmm. across Spain, and then I went to South America and did the um, – I went through – uh, Patagonia and I went to Nepal and did Lara's Trek and oh, hiked through Israel. And while I was doing all this walking, I, and I'd never hiked before in my life, 
all these ideas came into my head and I just couldn't get rid of them. And one of them, I became fixated on the idea of building an eco-village. And I was like, this is a crazy idea and kind of parked it like, you know, an icon in the middle of your screen, you push it (laughs) to the top left corner. (laughs) But it just kind of kept coming back. And eventually I shared it with a friend of mine who's a professor in Europe and he said, oh, you should speak to Professor Peter Newman at Curtin University in Perth. And I was in Ecuador at the time, um, just about to go and look at the Galapagos Islands, but I I got on my phone and I sent Peter an email and I said, I'm a returning West Australian coming home to Perth and I'm a former investment banker and I'm hoping to build an eco-village. And he wrote back almost immediately and said, that's a great idea and you should do it in Fremantle and he copied in the mayor of Fremantle and within um, a few months later I was back in Perth having lunch with Brad Kessie. Yeah, Yeah, with Brad Wow. And Peter was like, we should do it as a PhD. And I was like, no, I don't want to do any more study. <laughs> and, and he was like, oh, no, it will help inform the design of the eco-village. And, and so I, he said, we can get you a scholarship. And so I applied for this scholarship with the Cooperative Research Centre yep. for Low Carbon Living and was successful. And all of a sudden there was... No reason bang. not to. No. And then um, this project, WGV in Fremantle, was happening and they really wanted um, a point of difference and in looking at... Um, uh, medium density housing, there's really not very much by way of renewables. Mm-hmm. And although in Australia we have 25% of households with rooftop solar, apartments have virtually none and that's a third of the housing stock. Mm-hmm. And so in uh, in WGV I, I decided to try and install a solar and battery microgrid for an apartment building uh, and right. I was trying to find software that could make the system do what I had hoped, which was that uh, each apartment would be allocated units of electricity mm-hmm. and if they weren't home to consume their allocation, they could trade it with their neighbours. Uh, right. I couldn't find Didn't anything exist. that did that, no. And so I was kind of mulling over that and then in January of 2016, I just had my daughter about seven weeks earlier, a former J.P. Morgan colleague of mine, a gentleman by the name of Alan Young who's based in Sydney, emailed me and said, oh, there's these blockchain guys in Perth um, you should meet them. And so I invited them over to my house, uh, you know, holding the baby. My mum was there to help me, having this meeting with them and they were telling me about the blockchain and, honestly, I thought they were charlatans. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to ask you to explain the it's blockchain in a scene. second. <laughs> I can imagine it, picturing the scene, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I kind of – That'll be there. a key scene in your movie. Uh, <laughs> And so when they left, I got online and I'm like, what is this blockchain thing? Because I'd only only heard of the Bitcoin and they were just saying stuff that was just completely, you know, and I thought I'm a reasonably well-educated person. I had Mm. no idea what they were talking about. Um, But I then found this project in Brooklyn in New York, a microgrid project, and that they were using the blockchain. And they explained it that they were basically using it as a transactive grid. And the blockchain was the transaction for the electricity and it could also be the payments using crypto. Yeah. And I went, oh, that could do what I would like my apartment mm-hmm. to. And so I got quite excited about that. And then I introduced the blockchain guys to Dave Martin, who's one of my other co-founders. Yeah. And Dave had worked in energy networks, in poles and wires businesses for two decades. Right. And he had seen a structural problem in the networks business, which is the network is being used less because people are generating their own electricity. Yeah. Solar and power on the roofs. Yep. Yes. One in three houses in Perth now? Uh, nearly. Not, quite. not yeah. quite. Not quite. Almost? Right. Yeah. Tracking there very quickly. Yeah. So, yeah, Dave said 
that he saw that the blockchain could enable a more transactive grid, the grid as a trading platform. Right. And that you could, in doing so, maintain utilisation of the grid and therefore its relevance. Yeah. And so he said, Gemma, I want to set up a company. Do you want to join me? And I just went, yes, like that. <laughs> <laughs> Little did you know. <laughs> and and so basically we formed this company. So I got introduced to the blockchain guys in January and then by May we'd set up the company. Wow. And um, the first projects were um, we got a project in New Zealand, in Auckland, peer-to-peer trading trial across the network in Auckland and then the WGV project. In Frio. Right, in Fremantle. Okay. And there's, since then there's a lot of other projects which I, I can mention to you. But basically as this was happening, we saw that, there were all these blockchain companies that were creating cryptocurrencies for different purposes. Yep. And we could see in the electricity market that there was a, a real use case for for um, a, a crypto a piece of crypto or a token, as they call it, um, that could act as the prudential in the electricity market. And what that is, is it's like a bond backing. Buyers and sellers in the wholesale market take about 80 days to settle. So if you've got a power station, you sell electricity, you don't get paid for 80 days. Right. Wow. And in the meantime, the buyer puts up a bond in the wholesale market um, in the event that they default on paying the bill. Right. And it's a lot of money because there's a lot of electricity that's been covered for that period. And so we thought we could create a piece of cryptocurrency called the power token that acted as the bond backing but with a shorter settlement period because the blockchain means that you can settle payments much more efficiently. Mm. So it was to create a more efficient market and ensure the integrity of the market. So have you now built that in the WGV and the New Zealand? Yes. So um, we've got – Projects? Yes. We've got that um, operating – well, the, the New Zealand project was a trial which we successfully completed right. before we actually created the cryptocurrency. Right, gotcha. But the WGV projects include the power token and we've also oh. got some other projects and uh, like, for example, in Thailand, the yeah. Thai government has enshrined in its legislation peer-to-peer trading mm. wow. and we've just gone live there with a very exciting project. I think you wrote about this on Startup News a couple did. of weeks ago. Yes, very we good. Yes. Um, so I think it's nearly, uh, it's like about 700 kilowatts, so just under mm. a megawatt of installed capacity so far, but there's uh, like I think 5 to 10 megawatts coming online. So the technology works. It's doing what you want it to do. It is becoming the marketplace to trade power. Yeah, is that so, right? So the Thailand project is the first commercial trial, so getting right. to the scale. Yep. And I think that's a, if you look at the whole market in terms of blockchain, there are so many different assertions about what's possible mm, and some mm. people are trying to retrofit the tech in. Yep. In our case, I think at least we've got a problem we're trying to solve mm. and yes. we've now got projects in a number of different countries where we're basically proof of concept and then looking at scale and commercialisation. Mm. Do you have revenues now uh, for those projects or not so, yet? So we, are, we have got projects with revenue attached to them right. um, but I think that a little bit like we we do ha- we do have a clear view about where the revenue opportunities are, but right now we're choosing a pricing model which is about reducing the amount of friction it is to onboard customers mm. and um, install capacity, mm. uh, and so we're really a, a little bit like Facebook had in mind to get as many users on the platform and then not figure out where, how to monetize it, but then identify what the pathway to monetization is. Yeah, so there's been a lot of talk about blockchain and crypto, and I want to separate the two. So to go back a step, sorry, I know you've asked this, been asked this probably many times. Mm. Have you got a really good definition for the layman, layperson on what the blockchain is? Yes. For the uninitiated? Go. Yes. Um, Please explain. It's it's a database that records transactions. Right. And normally 
what happens, I mentioned the wholesale electricity market and there's an 80-day settlement period and that's because the buyer and seller have their own databases and the market operator has a database and the time taken to reconcile all those is 80 days. And using the blockchain you have a single record that all market participants use Mm -hmm. and the payment is also the transaction entry. And so as the transaction happens, the payment happens, can happen simultaneously. And so it means that you can create a more efficient marketplace and in doing so put price signals in that can solve market problems. So, for example, the price can go high because there's a lot of demand and then people that have battery-sourced electricity can provide that electricity at that moment and get an enhanced return. And I think that's... So they the, see that signal of the price going up, yeah. so they supply into that market. Yeah. But how is it different from any other database? There have been databases around for a long time to solve that problem. Well, you've got centralised databases and ah, right. each buyer and seller has their own record-keeping system and they all do invoicing of each other and, they, right. they, and that whole process is time-consuming uh, takes a long time and costly. And the idea of the blockchain is it, it's a record that everyone relies on. Single source of a truth. A single yeah. source of truth, exactly. It's called a decentralised database. No one's yeah. in control, no one's control of, it. of it. Correct. There's no mediator. Yeah, so with a public blockchain, which is what you're referring to, that is the case. So the the, the different nodes on that blockchain, yep. 50% of those nodes or more control how the database is managed. Right. And so to change an entry in that database, you need agreement or consensus from 50 percent or more of the nodes yeah right gotcha so then moving on to obviously the cryptocurrency piece of the puzzle which mm. is and this is relates to the power token and so you guys quite famously uh underwent the first ico in australia yes uh raising 35 million dollars so 34 34 sorry apologies what's a million yeah um so can you can you tell us give us a little insight into what that process was like how it was organized sure how you decided that that was the best way forward Sure. So in terms of the customer, they actually don't interact with cryptocurrency at all. They have a digital wallet um, that uses Sparks It's to trade electricity and it's like phone minutes. Um, yep. And, you know, one Spark is one cent and it's pegged to that and that's basically when they buy a dollar's worth of Sparks, they get 100 Sparks and they convert right. them back to dollars. It's the wholesale market or the business-to-business aspect of it that uses the power token as the bond backing in the wholesale market. Mm-hmm. And um, it allows the, the, the energy company to sell Sparks to its customer and they put up power token as a bond backing. And so it ensures that the customer is protected. When they redeem Sparks for dollars, um, the money is there. And in the event of default, default there's a power token sitting in an escrow wallet in a, under a smart contract, mm-hmm. which protects them. Uh, and uh, so we could see how the electricity market was functioning, albeit in a longer gestation period, and that there was a role for a token that could actually perform this utility. And we also saw lots of companies all around the world uh, holding token generation events or initial coin offerings. And many of them were just ideas and some of them didn't have a platform or applications, let alone projects. And we Mind saw... Mind you, the you first dot-com boom, yeah. isn't it? Well, in I the late it's, 90s, it's, which I was a part of. It's highly um, <laughs> analogous, I think, Charlie. Yeah. And, you, you know, then you saw so many companies set up and there was a bubble clearly yeah. and, oh, and the market sure. and it corrected itself but technology itself endured and I think that a lot of people say it's a bubble and dismiss what's going on but I think that there will be serious companies and changing the way commerce operates as yeah, a Can result I ask a really dumb question? Mm. So the $34 million, that's not your money then? That's a bond money? That's sort of sitting 
so, somewhere. So it's not for you to use. Uh, no, Gemma doesn't get to do that, <laughs> sadly. You set it up all wrong. <laughs> no. Uh, no, so Powerledger received that um, yes. those proceeds from yes. the sale of the, the um, Power Token and uh, it's using those to further develop the technology mm-hmm. and business development uh, and around scaling the capacity. So scaling. it is like raising capital, it's, effectively. Yes, without dilution. Without dilution, without you haven't given any shares, but you've yes. got these power tokens yes. there to be used. But $34 million is sitting in a bank account somewhere. Well. Uh, to be used for these development uh, yes, projects. Absolutely, that, yeah. yes. In the, we, we, we receive some payment in dollars, as you mentioned, and others in crypto right. as well. So it's a combination of cash and uh, cryptocurrency. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's quite a quite an, a, a raising there. So that I'm guessing mm. that comes with a whole bunch of, of pressure and expectations and how has that process been to kind of manage all of that? Well, yeah, it, you know, it's a significant amount of money for mm. any company to, you know, have within it, you know, its control. And a startup company. Yeah. Yes. A year um, old. I think that that comes with it a lot of responsibility. Absolutely. And, you know, if all if all PowerLedger ever does is that, it's a, a massive failure and you've got mm. no one to blame but yourself when you have got that, you know, that Much backing. Yeah. many resources at your mm. disposal. And so it's really about looking at what this – We it's like we stopped at the gas station we picked up petrol, but now we have to kind of – Get to know, your get destination. To the, exactly. And the, and the corporate mission is around the democratisation of power mm. and delivering low-cost and low-carbon energy. And lots of people, I uh, you know, say, oh, you know, you're doing so well. And I, I'm like – but I'm like we haven't actually done that yet so we filled it with petrol we're still on a journey yeah and I think it's it's you know it's worth to have a healthy dose of reality around that every morning um, and realize hey you know there's still lots of people in the world that don't have electricity yeah uh, and as a result of that they can't you know um uh, refrigerate medicine or right. uh, you know they're, they're using cook stoves and polluting the air that their children are breathing and so I think that and unless you know in the, the, the catastrophic climate change story as well you know unless we solve that mm. you know the developing world is currently set to repeat the mistakes of the developed world with you know electricity that's unaffordable to most and you know is really yep. problematic from a climate perspective and so the work that we're doing is really focused on our corporate mission, uh, delivering low-cost and low-carbon power. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've got a long way to go to achieve presumably that. we're going towards a future where one in three, well, it'll be one in a half houses in Perth and Australia and elsewhere, are actually generating their own power. And once they have batteries, they can store that power. Then the traditional power generator people are becoming less and less relevant. It's it's entirely possible that they could, but uh, like in my PhD, I looked at disruptive innovation theory and looked at other markets that have been disrupted, like for example, the horse and cart to the car, yep. or, um, the main frame from you know laptop computers, and um, incumbent players can do one of three things when they realise that their market share is being eroded. Um, they can fight against this, and we've seen that happening in Australia mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, reduce, uh, reducing renewable energy targets, removing carbon taxes, arguing, yeah. uh, reducing, yeah. Um, yeah, increasing fixed charges so consumers pay a electricity bill regardless of their consumption. So you've got all this kind of fighting behaviour. Then you've got flight, which is where they either do nothing or yeah. they, they divest. Stick their head in the sand. Yeah, yeah they can pretend it's nothing's not happening. happening. Or they, they're basically, you know, separating their fossil fuel assets and, and selling those yes. uh, and realising that the kind of writing's on the wall. Yes. Yeah. And the final thing is innovate. And that's where they start offering their customers solar panels and batteries 
or tools that help them reduce their electricity consumption. Yeah. But also uh, keep the business alive in the process. Yes. Yeah. Um, things that might cannibalise their existing business, but if they don't cannibalise it, someone else will. There's also non-cannibalistic behaviour, like they could start doing microgrids in remote towns that currently mm-hmm. don't have electricity and get new mm-hmm. customers. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing a lot of that. And you can fight and innovate at the same time. Yes. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of that occurring right now. Mm. And I think that within the next probably three years, not even five, the incumbent energy companies, uh, you know, will will have a come to Jesus moment where they <laughs> where they realise that the part is going to go in one direction. And a, yeah. a lot of the decisions will be made by them in the, you know in this intervening period. And I hope we end up with a situation where the grid remains. And I actually think it's very likely because mm. um, it is a valuable resource and not everyone can afford solar panels even right. with the best payback period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so having a transactive grid means that they're able to purchase electricity from people that do have them. How long do you think uh, someone like like myself and Beth here, will be able to trade their power on a power ledger network from the spare solar power that I've got or are there regulatory issues that are stopping you doing this in Australia? Uh, there's a few answers to that. So actually if you're in Fremantle, Charlie, I don't know where you live. but No, I'm not. Um, you can actually uh, <laughs> can do, this. do it already. Yes, yeah, so yeah. Um, Power Ledger and um, Western Power Synergy and Landcorp are doing a um, peer-to-peer trial which is funded from the federal government through the Smart Cities and Suburbs Program. Oh, right. And um, we've got a, a number of households in Fremantle, some prosumers, those with solar panels and some without, that mm-hmm. will be actually doing that. And uh, you can still sign up for that if you're in Fremantle. Okay. Uh, and so it's happening. It is, yes. How exciting. It is. And, in mm. fact, in Australia, the regulation allows for a certain amount of scale to be had in terms of trialling new types of tariffs, mm. um, which can get to quite a lot of scale in, in a, you know, testing new technologies type of sense. But uh, in Thailand I mentioned that it's enshrined in legislation there that peer-to-peer trading is uh, able to be, um, you know, basically fully implemented. And so I think you might actually find in some of the developing countries that are more agile from a regulatory perspective that you you actually are, they're leapfrogging to this new energy system faster than some high-income OECD countries. Wow, that's sure. fantastic. I've learned a tremendous lot so have I. from this. That's incredible. We're probably going to have to wrap it up, unfortunately. I think so. We we could keep talking to you for hours, Gemma, quite honestly. Oh. But what, what we will do is we'll, we'll hit you with a few uh, rapid-fire questions. Okay. So just answer, <laughs> don't ready? think, just go. It'll be painless, we promise. Um, so single most important factor that makes a successful startup, what do you think? Uh, you have to be... Belligerently determined. <laughs> yes, grit and determination. Absolutely. Do you believe in insourcing or outsourcing your tech? Insourcing. Right. Yes, absolutely. Very strongly. Yes. Yeah, I would like Perth to actually have that those expertise here. Yes, uh, definitely. So it, for me it's a really important. Been an issue to get those resources here? Uh, I wouldn't. It's been a challenge. Yeah. Um, you know, it hasn't been with that effort, but it's entirely possible I've, I've I've deduced. You can mm. you can attest to that. Yeah, so absolutely. I didn't ask how many staff you have. If you can share, thirty. Thirty now. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. Cool. Back to being rapid fire. Uh, mm-hmm. Should a startup self fund or raise money? So interesting uh, question both. of you. It's really interesting. Most of the startups we've had on have said combination of both, yes. based on where you're at. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. Are you a PC or Mac person? Mac. Beautiful. Uh, red or white? Red. Great answer. I agree. Do you listen to podcasts? If so, what are some of your favourites? Masters of Scale. Who's that? I've uh, heard of that one. I haven't listened to many, but I have. Yeah, I've only listened to three in the past yeah. few weeks, but I really. Masters of Scale. I yeah, it's that one really, out. really good. I've also started to listen to a few audio books online because right. I've got. 
just had a baby 10 weeks ago and it's a bit hard to hold a book, but you can (laughs) (laughs) have it read to you. It's all about adaptability. Mm. (laughs) Beautiful. Well, look, thank you so much, Gemma, for your time. My pleasure. And thank you everyone for listening. And don't forget to, of course, give the Startup West podcast a lovely review because that helps people find us. Uh, Subscribe and listen to our stuff and give us all the feedback that you can. We really do love to hear it. Thanks, Belle. Thanks, Thanks, Gemma. Gemma. All the best with Power Ledger. Thank you.